Well, I invite you to turn with me in your Bibles, or there's a pew Bible nearby at the end of the pew if you need one, to the book of Luke. I'm going to take a look at Luke chapter 18 today as we uh, come in, uh, not this Sunday, but next Sunday, finishing up our summer series and the sayings and deeds of Jesus. And today, as we look at our passage, uh, my prayer is that the Lord will give you and I eyes to see, overcome the a blindness that affects all of us, and that we would be granted a view to the beauty and the power of faith in the cross of our suffering Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. I invite you to stand uh, with me and read along silently as I read aloud, starting in Luke chapter 18, verse 31. And taking the twelve, Jesus said to them, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and everything that is written about the Son of Man by the prophets will be accomplished. For he'll be delivered over to the Gentiles. He'll be mocked and shamefully treated and spit upon. And after flogging him, they will kill him. And on the third day... He will rise. But they, the disciples, understood none of these things. This saying was hidden from them, and they did not grasp what was said. Verse 35. As Jesus drew near to Jericho, a blind man was sitting by the roadside begging. And hearing the crowd going by, he inquired what this meant. They told him. Jesus of Nazareth is passing by. And he cried out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Those who were in front rebuked him, telling him to be silent. But he cried out all the more, son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus stopped and commanded him to be brought to him. And when he came near, he asked him, what do you want me to do for you? He said, Lord, let me recover my sight. And Jesus said to him, recover your sight. Your faith has made you well. And immediately he recovered his sight and followed Jesus, glorifying God. And all the people, when they saw it, gave praise to God. You may be seated. And let's pray again. Lord Jesus, we do ask that you would... Give us who uh, frequently do not have eyes to see the beauty of the cross, vision today, so that we can apprehend the beauty, the power of it for our lives. Help us to see as the blind man did even before he regained his physical vision, what you desire for us to see spiritually. We pray this. In the name of Jesus, amen. Well, in some of our Peter's family travels that we had earlier in the month of July, one of our objectives was to connect up with some college students that we formerly had the chance, as I led a campus ministry, several different campus ministries in St. Louis. 
a chance to connect up with some of those students. And it was just an enjoyable time as we were on our travels to see a number of them. Some had even met through that college ministry. We're now uh, married. Some had children. Um, many of them living out their faith now as families, as couples in their neighborhood, in their workplace, connected with their church body. We ran into one uh, young man in particular that I had gotten to know in my time in St. Louis, who now is married to one of the gals in the, uh, that was in the other ministry that we were connected with. And he uh, works for a major international corporation, now has two kids. But as we talked, I was reminded of the time when he came and shared with me, this is years ago now, about a physical difficulty he was facing. To look at him from the outside, he looked as typical as any other college guy. But I remember that day when he came and explained to me that he had recently discovered that he was suffering and his vision was declining because of a degenerative disease that had already caused his mother to be legally blind at that time. She's even worse now today. And that was at his age, maybe 21, 22 years old, beginning to seriously affect his vision. I remember that. So when I saw him, I asked him about how things were with that. And he shared that he no longer is able to drive at night. He's in his mid-30s. He's legally allowed just barely still to drive during the day. But he doesn't really do that because he knows it's not all that safe. They located their home right next to one of the uh, train lines so that he could ride that back and forth to work because he really can't get there otherwise. And uh, in his profession as an engineer designing various parts, he he literally has two uh, 30-some-inch screens, not one, two of them, the size of a large TV in, in some of our homes that he uses with the help of glasses, with the help of a a secondary telescopic lens that flips down in front of his eyes just to be able to do his job. It's amazing he's been able, in his case, to uh, move through in his career quite well. But it was sad uh, for me, and, and of course he shared through his faith in the gospel how even this setback that currently they have no cure for and he knows where it's headed, It's not improving. It's getting worse that that nevertheless, the Lord was using that thorn in the flesh to allow him to grow, to allow him to have greater dependence upon the Lord and his work in his life. But as we stood there and his two little kids were running around the playground, if you've been around me when I'm assigned the task of watching my kids at the playground, that's a hard enough task when you can see perfectly clearly. And I thought about it, particularly as his kids wandered around and he can barely see beyond a short distance, how challenging life is for him. Maybe you have uh, friends, neighbors, family members that are, you know, even in worse condition, maybe completely blind, have completely lost their sight. But it's interesting to imagine what it was like, particularly in this ancient world of Jesus's time, with no uh, extra helps, none of the technology that we have today to at least help those struggling with vision to, to be able to survive and do what they need to in life. Uh, uh, no, no handicap facilities, if you will, to see that this man that encounters Jesus really in a way has, has no other hope. And he knows it. He's there begging, not by choice. He's there begging because he's got no other 
opportunity to do anything. And yet, what's amazing, if you and I have eyes to see it today in the passage, is that he ends up seeing, not only physically, but spiritually, and he set in tremendous contrast to Jesus' disciples, who in these first couple of verses don't see, don't apprehend spiritually one of the central realities of our spiritual life, the cross, the sacrifice, the life of Jesus laid down for you and for me. If you want to follow along in your worship guide, there's a, a rather long, I'll admit today, a main idea. So I was trying to get all of the things in this passage, all of the, of the beauty wrapped up in one sentence, if I could. And that is just that since it's difficult, even for close followers of Jesus, to see the beauty and power of his sacrificial cross, even for close followers of Jesus, that's challenging, that we should desire faith to get mercy from the son of David. Let's unpack this uh, just a little bit. We saw last week that uh, Jesus in Luke 15 is uh, not afraid to rebuke the religious leaders of the day, the Pharisees, scribes, and so forth. And he told the parable about the lost sheep, reminded them of the beauty of those that are outside of the gospel coming to receive it outside of the kingdom. Uh, We saw that that's in the context of the prodigal son and the prodigal son coming back and how the older brother doesn't rejoice in it. And, And it was an indictment, a rebuke of the Pharisees and the scribes, those religious leaders of the time. Well, we see in our passage today, Jesus is an equal opportunity rebuker. He doesn't hold it back. He'll rebuke whoever needs to be rebuked. And here we have uh, maybe a little bit more subtly rebuking, correcting his disciples. His disciples who should see, who've been told, in fact, previous times in Luke, we are reminded in the Gospels that Jesus is going to go on this path of suffering, that that's the way his kingdom's going to come, that he's going to lay down his life. And he reminds them even in here of the hope that he's going to rise. But they don't hear it, do they? It says in verse 34 that in three different ways, doesn't it? They understood none of these things. That's clear enough. It doesn't have to tell us anymore. But it goes on and says this saying was hidden from them. And then the third time it says they did not grasp what was said. Kind of beating us over the head there to make sure we understand. Disciples, not getting it. Not understanding what Jesus is saying. More than that, we see that this passage uh, in each of the Gospels. So if you look at Matthew and Mark, I won't have you turn there for sake of time and additional energy heat produced by turning the Bible pages. But if you trust me, look in Matthew and Mark at the same area where these the same account essentially is given. It's interesting. In each of those passages. This verse about the healing of the beggar, in one passage we're we're given his name, Bartimaeus, this passage about the healing of the blind beggar is situated in each of the Gospels just a little bit after this same mention that Jesus is coming to suffer and die and to give his life on the cross and the fact that the disciples don't see it. You understand? 
It's no mistake. It's put together, that context. And I have to admit, I didn't see that. I, I praise God for the work of the Holy Spirit and some good commentaries this week and just working through prayer. Because when I started looking at this this week, I was like, okay, what is going on with this? Why are these things together? Okay, great. Jesus does another miracle. Wonderful. He heals another guy. He gets to see. We've we kind of read that before. Same chapter, second verse. Same song, second verse, you know. But when you put it together with the verses before, it's clearly saying that there's something beautiful about the fact and ironic about the fact that this blind beggar sees when other people around him, even the disciples closest to Jesus, can't see, can't apprehend. It's interesting too. look at this. Look at this twist with me. What do the people do when the beggar, the blind man starts to call out to Jesus? What's their response? There's kind of a bigger crowd now together, the disciples plus some others. They rebuke him. They say, shut up. Be quiet. Now, we don't know. Some of those folks in that crowd, maybe they had a, a lesser ailment, but that says they're in front of him, so they're in line. You know, we're in line for Jesus. Be quiet back there. You know, take, wait your turn, guy. Quit yelling. Maybe they're just bothered because this fellow's sort of obnoxious and crying out. Maybe they're just on their way. They're, hey, we're on a journey. We don't have time to stop. It's hard to know all the reasons. But here's the contrast. They're actually in the process of being rebuked by Jesus and by this blind man. They think they're rebuking him. So there's an irony here at a couple of levels. Here's what I want us to focus on. Then we'll make a couple of application points and and uh, come to the conclusion of our worship time today. Take a look with me at what the man says. Okay. On the surface, if you look at verse um, 38 and then verse 39, it just seems pretty straightforward. You know, what's the magic spell? I guess we might ask. Well, why, why does Jesus react differently to this guy than he might to any other person? Does it seem like it's something special? Jesus says, hey, bring him over to me. All these other people gather together, but get that guy. Bring him over here to me. I want to talk to him. Why? What did he cry out? Two main things. The first thing is that he cried out, son of David. Son of David. Probably doesn't mean a, a whole lot to us. Obviously, it's, it's piggybacking off the fact that in both of the genealogies of Jesus, both through Mary and through Joseph's side, so his, his uh, biological, if you will, a genealogy and his uh, adoptive genealogy through Joseph, He's linked back to the family of David. So you got that biological side, but there's more than that here, right? Because Jesus is coming as the son of David, not simply in that way, genealogically, but he's coming in a spiritual genealogy. He's the fulfillment of the promises that would come, that would be fulfilled and were promised back through King David in the Old Testament. Second Samuel chapter seven is where we read about that. So when this man cries out, son of David, to Jesus, he's not just shouting any phrase. He's not just saying, hey, buddy, uh, hey, hey, you, or even, hey, Jesus. He's saying, I believe, I recognize that you are the Messiah, that you are the one promised to come. You are the ultimate one, and I recognize that. Quickly, take a look at what else. The man says, he says, son of David. And then in both of the, the, the sentences, when he cries out, he finishes 
with have mercy on me. Again, hey, yeah, he needs help. It makes sense for him to cry out and say, have mercy. Do, do turn back with me now, if you've got a Bible handy, to Psalm 4. Psalm 4. And look at verse 1 with me. And, and, and in the ESV, if you have the ESV translation, it kind of it, it changes it to uh, be gracious to me. But it's the same idea. Have mercy on me, be gracious to me. And just click with me through a couple of these. Psalm 4, verse 1. Answer to me when I call, O God of my righteousness. Who's this addressed to? God, right? You have given me relief when I was in distress. Be gracious to me. It's the same, same wording as have mercy on me. Jump over to uh, Psalm 6. It should be just a page or so over for you. Psalm 6, verse 2. Be gracious to me, O Lord, for I am languishing. Over to... Psalm 9, verse 13. Be gracious to me, O Lord. Jump. There's about 20 more of them, but jump on ahead with me to Psalm 51, verse 1. Here it's got the exact same wording as we see in the Gospels. And here is a psalm written by who? Written by David. Written by David after his sin with Bathsheba. And what does he begin with? Have mercy on me, O God. It's no random Uh, a slip of the tongue that this man says, have mercy on me. He's crying out with the words that the people of God are accustomed to having on their lips when they're crying out to God. He's saying, you are son of David. You are God. I acknowledge who you are. And that's why I think Jesus responds to this man's faith. He's exhibiting faith. He's believing things about Jesus in the midst of Jesus' disciples who don't get it. And so we come to the last part of what I want to say today. What is it that's so concerning to Jesus that he would he would emphasize the faith of the blind man in contrast to the lack of faith in his disciples? Well, it's because of the fact that the cross, as the Apostle Paul says in First Corinthians 15, is of central importance. It's not a side detail of the Christian life. Jesus laying down his life, giving his righteous self for you and for me, and then purchasing eternal life, rising up so that we can join him in resurrection. That's right at the middle of things. And so the fact that the disciples aren't getting that is deeply concerning, deeply disturbing. Jesus, as I said, has mentioned it other places. I like what uh, Charles Spurgeon said. He said, the heart of Christ, talking about the cross, the heart of Christ became like a reservoir in the midst of the mountains. Sounds pretty good right about now, huh? We'd like to jump in, wouldn't we? Like a reservoir in the midst of the mountains. All tributary streams of iniquity, every drop of the sins of his people, ran down and gathered into one vast lake, deep as hell. Shoreless as all eternity. All these met, as it were, in Christ's heart, and he endured them all. What's the application for us today? We don't always love the cross either, do we? We like all the bells and whistles and benefits, maybe, to being in the Christian life. And and, and let's, you know. Let's make sure we're speaking truthfully. There are great benefits. You receive Christ. You have peace. You have life. You have purpose. All of those things. 
But guess what? Jesus says part of the Christian life is going to be humbling like the cross. Humbling increasingly in our culture to be identified and say that you are a follower of Christ and you believe what this word says and how it should affect our lives. That's going to be a humbling thing for all of us. Suffering is a message out there prevailing in our culture in the midst of even many of our churches and around the world that receiving Jesus is going to make everything go Jim Dandy in your life. Be smooth sailing from here. You will be healthy, wealthy, and wise. Everything will be good. Jesus doesn't have that message for us. He says, you're going to be a follower of me. You're probably going to face some suffering. In fact, that's one of the ways I like to work in people's lives. Submission. They're following him. they got to go with him where he's going. And what else is tough about the cross? It requires vision, doesn't it? It requires spiritual vision. How amazing that this blind man is able to see it when it's so difficult for his disciples. It's so difficult often for you and I to see it. In conclusion, as we think about the uh, cross, we think about Christ. Let's jump back into the situation of this blind guy for just one second more. You know, uh, I, I don't know how you respond and, and sincere apologies to all the pharmaceutical salespeople that are in our congregation. But I don't know how you respond to the uh, commercials on TV that are going on about the latest drug that's coming out. I hit the change channel button as fast as I possibly can. Right. As soon as one of those drug commercials comes on, because, you know, you're going to it's all going to be, you know, roses and lovely picture and running in the fields and so forth. And in the background, at some point, they're going to tell you, by the way, your head might explode, you know, if you take this stuff. So you tune it out. Unless. Unless. You have that problem. In fact, the drug companies and their marketing folks are literally banking on the fact. Have you ever wondered why they keep putting these on TV? I mean, who listens through all of these things? Who listens to them is somebody who needs it. Will listen very intently to what that commercial says. And, and you know they will because what do they always say at the end? What am I supposed to do? I'm supposed to go and ask my doctor. They're banking on the fact that if you realize you need this, you're going to listen. You're going to receive it. You're going to ask your doctor. I'm going to ask my doctor. Such is the posture of the man that sees Jesus coming by. He recognizes what Jesus has to offer. Like a lot of other people around, even Jesus' own disciples don't. And he knows he needs it. So he cries out, as we ought to cry out day by day, Son of David, have mercy on me. Let's pray. Father, we are incredibly thankful that uh, you saw fit to love us enough to send the Messiah, the promised one, the son of David, who would bring uh, redemption, would bring salvation to us. Help us to see it today. Help us even to see the beauty of the cross and the call that you give us to take up our cross to lose our life. And you tell us that in doing that, we'll save it. And when we try to save our life, we're actually losing it. Let us give our lives over to you more fully because of the beauty, because of the power of the cross. We pray in Jesus name. Amen.